If you have a Bible, you want to dial uh, up a passage on your device, we will be in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, we've been in our series, and this is the last week of our series through the book of Jonah. Uh, before I get started in the sermon, I just want to say hello to all the people who are at home online who have been, uh, you know, um, separated because of health issues or because of just general caution or things going on with their family. And so if you get a chance at the end of this service, if you want to jump in front of the camera and wave to any of the folks who are at home, I'm sure they'd appreciate to see your face. Uh, if For those of you who are here physically, that might be a great act of love. But I just want to say hello to folks who are uh, online at home right now. Um, we've been in our series through Jonah for, I don't know, five, six weeks, and the byline for the series is Jonah, Nation, Race, Justice, and Mercy. These are themes that we will kind of see all wrap up into one final but somewhat vague point at the end of chapter 4. We said last week that the book of Jonah could have ended in chapter 3. It would have been a nice buttoned up a Cosby show type of sitcom level, everything figures itself out in about a half hour type of book of the Bible. But instead, God has a very powerful point for us this morning as we walk through the entire chapter. And I don't know about you, but this has been a very interesting and challenging uh, trek through this Old Testament book. I think I've seen more things from this book than I probably would have even expected about God's heart. His heart for the lost, for the hurting, for people who, as we'll see in chapter 4, don't know their right hand from their left. And uh, I don't know about you, but COVID and elections and what else is going on? Just like crazy stuff in the world. Uncertainty, um, you know, unprecedented is the word that everyone's using right now. Uh, they've made me kind of feel like I just don't know what's true anymore. And I think we've heard from even some congregants, some church members who are saying, I'm lonely, I'm isolated, I'm not sure what I even believe anymore, and it can kind of just be this low-grade disappointment. Just all the things that kind of have been hitting people in this season. And for me, uh, when things get hard, when it's kind of a, a prolonged sense of suffering, uh, it can feel like my heart is disconnected from the things that I'm doing in my faith. So, for instance, I'll read the Bible and see that God calls you to do something great with your life or to follow God's call on your life or to obey the Lord as described in Scripture. And then sometimes we can even do the duties but have our heart somewhat disconnected from it. And that can be death to your spiritual life. When you're doing the duties of the Christian life but your heart is not filled with love and compassion and hope and joy with God in a relationship, in a, a daily walk with God— but it's all just religious outside stuff, then it can really feel detrimental to where your heart is really at. We have to, especially in this season, connect honoring the Lord with our obedience and sacrificial living, missional living, living on mission, the mission that God's called us to, and a heart that is God's heart, a compassionate heart, a graceful heart. And that's something that, for me, has just been leaping off the pages in the book of Jonah. We have this kind of duty in a prolonged time of uncertainty to sustain a life on mission. And the only way to sustain our church, to sustain the, what God is doing in and through our church, is to continue to check our heart and connect it with God's heart. So my, my big idea for this morning is that something we'll see in chapter 4. An unhealthy heart will not sustain a life on mission. In chapter 4 we see in vivid detail Jonah's unhealthy heart at the end of this book. And it's meant to be kind of like a, a CAT scan or like x-ray where they throw it up on the screen and then they put the light from behind the x-ray and then they show you, here's what's wrong with you. And a doctor can kind of pinpoint right on the, on the x-ray and say, see that dot right there? That's bad news. You have a problem. And in this scenario, we're talking about our heart. Jonah chapter 4 is like thrown up on that. Some light shines from behind it. And it's almost like God is saying, you see that spot? That is the bigotry of your heart. That's, that's a little bit of self-righteousness. That's a little bit of, of idolatry of comfort and security. And that's my, my hope with this morning is that we look at the x-ray and we say, I think I see what's going on in my heart a little bit because of God's word. Now let's go to work to heal it and to fix it. So Jonah chapter 4, an unhealthy heart cannot sustain a life on mission. Let's start in verse 1. 
But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life away, for it's better for me to die than to live. Let's, let's pause here just for the first couple of verses. This is supposed to be funny. This is supposed to be ridiculous that a prophet from God who would know his Bible and he would know that basically what he's quoting here is Exodus 34, 6. He's saying, God, I'm so angry. I want to die right now. I knew you would fulfill this old saying that everyone who's a Jew would memorize, that he's uh, abounding in love and slow to anger. And I knew this would be a part of you. And he's sitting outside of the city now mad at God because of his compassion for Nineveh. Verse 4. But then the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. We're supposed to read this and think Jonah is acting like a very fussy young kid. That he's, he's happy in one moment. He's very frustrated in one moment. You please him. You kind of give him what he wants. And he kind of takes a breath and says, oh, okay, I think I'm okay. Because he has exactly what he wants. This nice leafy plant that in an arid, hot climate would be wonderful. Especially if you're sitting outside of the city and there's no other shade. And we know from... Um, the plants that grow even in this area today, that there are some plants that can grow up overnight very quickly and create shade for uh, someone sitting underneath it. So the question here in the narrative is how exactly is God going to smite these jerks? Jonah's sitting outside of the city thinking, I wonder if it's going to be some huge animal that comes up from the deep and then falls on the city, or is it going to be a fireball that blows it up? If so, I should probably get a little bit far outside of it. Or will it be a lightning bolt that kind of just shoots around everyone and they drop dead? I wonder. I wonder how creative God's going to get. Is it going to be a plague or some sort of weird smoke or a sandstorm? And he's sitting just far enough away, you could imagine, to make sure that whatever spray, whatever dust, whatever rocks that are going to kill all these people doesn't hurt me. All right, continuing on in the story. Verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Okay. So God keeps asking these rhetorical, they're not so rhetorical, these questions about, to Jonah. And if you're a parent and you do have young kids, you might know that sometimes you ask questions because you're trying to make a point, but in a way that they kind of arrive at the conclusion themselves. We know there's already been a few different questions God's asking. So did you make this plant? And did you, are you in control of the wind? Just a quick question, Jonah. Do, do you, is it you who created the sun, moon, and stars? Is it you with all this perspective here? Or is it me? He's trying to make a point. And then the passage ends with the point. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The word of the Lord. That's the whole book. That's the book of Jonah. It just ends with a question. And many animals. And of course, because we're, we're, it's an odd, abrupt ending, we're meant to be like, we're meant to sit with that angst, with that uncertainty, with that lack of a conclusion, because it's a cliffhanger. And of, of course, the cliffhanger is, is pointing to the truer and better Jonah, who succeeded where Jonah failed, Jesus. And it's meant to be lived out through people who are seeking to understand God's heart and compassion and God's mission. So God called Jonah to the city. He ran in chapter 1. He went to the city for a bit and preached a sermon in chapter 3 that was five Hebrew words. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. He ends up outside of the city 
Why is he so unfaithful on his mission? Why is Jonah so disconnected from his faith and so um, back and forth, bipolar with his faith? In chapter 2, overwhelmed with God's love, saying, I will say salvation is of the Lord. I will worship and I'll look to your holy temple. He's having a wonderful worship moment in chapter 2. And then in chapter 4, angry, bitter, and frustrated. What would cause that kind of problem? Obviously, he's disconnected from God's heart. And everything else for the rest of this sermon is going to be kind of working through, jumping into the text, getting into the skin of the character here, Jonah, and then we're going to close with a lot of application for what it means for us in our area, in our circles of influence, in our lives. Sometimes people complain that God is too condemning, that the God of the Bible is condemning and Christians are closed-minded, and if we really followed the Bible with fervor, if we were fundamental believers in Jesus, that we would mistreat people because of that closed-mindedness. But that is not the problem with this chapter. I mean, you might have the complaint to say, um, Christians are bad people. I actually agree with that one. I'm chief among them, you know, of course. And uh, if you have the complaint that God is condemning closed-minded— the complaint that Jonah has is that God is too gracious, that we can't pin down who he has mercy for, who has repented enough to have his grace and forgiveness, and who hasn't. And if you walk through the Bible, you'll see that same thing happening over and over again. You try and pin him down. You try and create a religious structure around it so you know exactly God's mind and heart, and you know exactly where God's working. And, and the effort, of course, throughout Scripture is that so we can control him, so we can harness his power and make it our own, the complaint here is that he's too graceful, he's too forgiving. Jonah's expectation in his cultural assumption is that you should make a good decision, God rewards that decision. And if you make two good decisions, then God will reward two good decisions. And if we're honest, some of us have objections from both sides of it. It might be personal, it might be cultural, but there are a number of people who do have that complaint about God. Um, here I'm thinking of people I know who maybe have been influenced by Confucianism or, um, or Western people are so independent, so individualistic, and we're always saying, how could God ever condemn anyone because everyone's just good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like us. I'm a snowflake, and I deserve everything I imagine God might give me. And then some people have a more structured um, uh, honor and shame kind of assumption about God. And so the complaint there would be, these people did not get religious A's. They did not make the good choices that would warrant God's honoring of their decisions. Isn't it true, here's my point, that we have complaints on both sides of God. He's too forgiving. He's not forgiving enough. And I think we have to recognize that part of our heart. That sometimes we get mad at God because he's unwieldy. He kind of throws his mercy and forgiveness and a relationship on people that we don't think have cleaned their life up enough. And at the same time we complain that God is too pushy, he's always trying to manage our lives, and he's a controlling God. It almost seems like uh, with a sinful heart, we can't, we can't let God win in our lives, and maybe that's the goal, is that he doesn't have control of your life because you have these objections, which, if I'm honest, are birthed into a lot of cultural assumptions about the way you think God should act. And Jonah chapter 4, God is slapping up the x-ray to say, your heart might be the issue, not me. And it actually is a really good thing that we have ways that God disagrees with our assumptions about him because it, it shows us that he's real, that he has a personality. There's a personhood to God. He's not just a religious system that we can kind of latch on to. Enough about that. Let's keep going in our passage. If you look in verses 9 through 11, we see God's compassionate heart. And if we want to live on mission, we have to stay in line with that compassionate heart. This whole thing about the plant happens in verse 9. In verse 10, you've been concerned about the plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and then it died. And in verse 11, God shows us his cards. He's saying, I made these people in that city. They're mine. How am I not going to have compassion for them? That's God's compassionate heart. Another way to say it would be God is voluntarily attached to people more than plants. <laughs> this might be obvious to you, but I, I, there's an old quote, quote that I read, read from an old urban ministry monk. It was like an urban monk living within the city. Like a lot of monks, they're always trying to produce more for other people than they consume in the city. That's when an urban monk 
kind of tries to do, living very lean and very sustainable, and then looking around the neighborhood and saying, how can I create programs and help other people? And this guy said this, very simple equation. God loves people more than plants, right? God, in a city like we live in here, there's more people than plants, right? And therefore, wouldn't it stand to reason that God loves a city more than the country? Now, that's easy to say because we live in the city, so we can say, you're right, God loves Brea more than he does some other distant land that's not as important. That's not the point I'm trying to make, but if you look at the way we typically post on social media about God's creation, what do we typically post? Plants. Because you finally got out of the city, you finally went hiking, you took a breath, you, you breathed some fresh air, and you went, wow, God is good. He made mountains. And yet God's heart, compassion actually is the word that pops up three times in this chapter, and other times, uh, synonyms of it in the Hebrew uh, throughout this book. God's heart, compassion is for people. And so if you live in a high-rise apartment complex and you're rolling down the, the halls of your apartment or you drive in traffic on the 57 and you're in some very congested part of our cities, you can look around and take a picture of everyone stressed out in traffic and say, look at God's creation. Because there's a bunch of wonderful people who bear the image of God because God's heart is for people. I want to challenge you to do it. Uh, add some like hashtag blessed at, you know, and say, like, isn't God's creation wonderful? And I want you to post it on Instagram this week, and I want it to be the most congested place that you'll ever be within the city of Brea or the surrounding areas. God is saying, you're concerned with plants. My heart is for people because they're my creation. I formed them. I put personalities in them. When they get together, they make culture, and it makes different kinds of soups and different kinds of burritos and different kinds of meats, and it, 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 people laugh at different things, and people cry about different things, and they, their families get together and celebrate different things, and that's a wonderful part of God's creation that we're meant to see when we live in a city, especially because that's where God's heart is if we had to fall off the fence more than the country. There's three ways that God's compassion can just change us, and sometimes we put it in points so we can remember them if you're a note taker. If not, don't remember them, but just kind of let it sit on you. Uh, God is compassionate to us because it's voluntary. He is voluntarily attaching himself to our lives. God's attached to us because he cares. Here's a couple of verses from the Old Testament, not even Jesus, not even the New Testament, but the Old Testament about God's compassion and his voluntary association for us. In Hosea, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, how shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I abandon thee, Israel? My heart is turned within me, God says. O Jerusalem, how often I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not be gathered. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on her child that she's born? Though she may not forget, though she may forget, I will never forget you. God has a compassion for us. He has chose to attach himself to the lives of people. And he's still doing that today, even more true in Jesus Christ. Second, we ask compassion for us because we're lost. If you look in the end of the passage, it says, how can I not have compassion for all these people? Because they don't even know their right hand from their left. Do you feel that way sometimes in life? Where you're going, I don't know what job I'm going to get. I don't know what my calling is. I don't know what my meaning is. I don't even know where my meaning in life is going to come from next week. And sometimes I, I feel like I know in my head, but I don't know it in my heart. Do you feel like sometimes you don't know your right hand from your left? You can't string together even a few good days worth of like stability and spiritual maturity. Even more true for people who don't know God. They don't want to know God. And God's saying, I, I, I have a heart for those people because they don't even know what's coming to them if they have a relationship with me. They don't know what could happen to their life, to their meaning, to their spiritual life, if they were to submit to me. God has a compassion for those people. And then lastly, he forgives readily. And isn't that the case with a heart of compassion? It says here in Jonah 4, I knew you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. He has compassion on you. And if you're here this morning and you feel like your default relationship with God is if I was good this week, then I can show up to Sunday and be hopeful. 
feel that God loves me, understand that you're right in a place to understand God's compassion if you feel like a screw-up. If you feel like you didn't read the Bible enough times, you didn't serve other people enough, this is a perfect moment for you to take a breath and just say, if, if God, if you have compassion on me, please let it land on my emotions so it changes the way I think and feel and act. And then if you, as far as application, if you're a, a Christian who's growing in your connection to God's compassionate heart, then the application for us leaving this series is to take that heart wherever God has called you, into the city, into your workplace, into your family, and to live out that compassionate heart changes you, changes the way you live, and goes on to other people. Let's close our series by talking about the city and taking God's compassionate heart into that city and into the circles of influence that we have. Um, if you look in chapter 1, verse 1 of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 1, and then a few times in chapter 4, you'll see that God has a love for the city. He calls Jonah to the city. He calls Jonah to the city again, and then he finishes the book by saying, how can I not have love for a city? 120,000 people, which in the day was the biggest city in the world. And of course, we have population growth because of it. You have to understand how huge that number would have sounded when the average city in the ancient world, it's still called a city, was 3,000 people. 3,000 people, walls around it, that's a city. How can I not have love for a city predominantly militaristic, violent, known for being the most violent culture of the day, but 120,000 people, how can I not love them? There's another city that the Jews were taken into, not just invaded by Assyria, but later in the nation of Israel, Babylonia, uh, took Israel captive. They were exiles there. They invaded Israel. They took Israel away. And then the first resort of the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 29, different city, different invasion, different exile, was to sit outside of the city. The first thing the Jews wanted to do when they were invaded by Babylon was to sit outside of the city, make a Jewish Israel enclave and say, we'll preserve our traditions, we'll preserve our people group, we'll hunker around and help each other succeed. Maybe eventually we'll become the successful people in this culture and take it over. But instead, in Jeremiah 29, God says, be strong, courageous, and move into the city, and settle there, and raise kids, and make the city prosper. God's people had been invaded, killed, taken away. It was a brainwashing technique to say, we're going to make you live in our society so much that you assimilate with us over a few generations, and then you'll be ours. You'll eventually capitulate. You'll eventually give up your God and take on our God. You'll live in exile. It's kind of a relationship that we have with our dominant culture today. And then God's call to them was to say, be strong, be courageous, and go in to the city and work for its shalom, work for its peace, work for every part of that city's growth and human flourishing. And the same thing happened in the book of Acts. By 300 AD, Acts 17, for instance, that's not 300 AD early. Acts 17, Paul goes and preaches into the city of Athens, and he goes into City Hall, and he preaches about God, and then these people are like, this is interesting what you're saying, and then they want to hear more from him, and eventually the gospel goes out through all of these imperfect people who have the good news on their lips, and, and they're applying it to the needs of the, these different cities. Look at all the epistles written in the New Testament. It's all a list of cities and churches that were started there, Ephesus, Corinth, uh, the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, is a bunch of cities listed in the first couple chapters because the gospel is going out into all these places. And by 300 AD, a majority of the culture was influenced by Christianity. And a very interesting thing happened around that time. 410 AD, plagues, I'm sorry, an invader, an invading army invaded Rome. So at that time, the church was trying to say, we're going to turn this culture Christian. We're going to eventually get in the middle class and then we're going to get in the upper class, and then we're going to control the military, and then the whole nation will be Christian. And if Rome is Christian, then the rest of the world will have to be Christian. And then Rome was sacked in 410. And in the wake of that culture starting to fall apart, people finally realizing that maybe this city, maybe this government, we, the Christians have kind of latched themselves onto, will not last forever. In the wake of that social upheaval, a very 
now famous Christian thinker, Augustine, wrote The City of God, where he basically made the point that y'all are putting your hope. I don't know if he said y'all. He was probably from the South. Um, Y'all are putting your hope in the city of man, but the Bible very clearly ends with the city of God coming. Revelation 21 says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So Augustine says, we're putting too much hope and we're latching onto the hopes of this culture and this economy. And we're saying, we're assuming that if I work very hard, my kids will get up into this class and then they'll get high paying and very secure jobs because eventually we'll be in the upper class and we'll build a legacy for our family. And I'm going to suffer now, but, I'll, but my kids will make their way into these upper echelons. And Augustine's saying, instead of trying to make it our way up in Rome, you're putting your hope in Rome too much. Sure, succeed. Help the city thrive. Do what God has called you to do. But don't expect this thing to live forever because we live for an eternal city to come. So an application point. In the end, the citizens of heaven become the best citizens of the city of earth because we have a hope and a future that's something greater than the city of man. And that's played its way out in a really powerful illustration that we should know during a pandemic. And for the sake of mixed ages being here, I have to kind of cut one of my quotes describing this situation. But you should know that in early Christianity, 165 AD, a plague hit the known world. And then 100 years later, another plague hit the known world. And it's very detailed by a secular historian, Rodney Stark. He wrote a book from a secular perspective called The Rise of Christianity. And it makes you ask the question, why would a plague hitting the entire world cause the rise of Christianity? Why would it create a bump? Why would it create an explosion? Rodney Stark describes the difficulty of plagues hitting the ancient world at the time. He says, I have to do some selective editing, I'm sorry. The doctors were quite incapable of treating the disease. Equally useless were the prayers of people from their temples. People were afraid to visit one another. As a result, they passed away with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished because of lack of attention. For the, edit, for the catastrophe was so overwhelming that men became indifferent to every rule of religion or law. As for the gods, it seemed to be the same thing when one saw the good and the bad dying indiscriminately. Rodney Stark describes a dark world where a real global pandemic happened in a pre-modern world. And then Dionysius, from that very time, writes firsthand account of what Christians did during that pandemic. Let me read it to you. Most of our fellow Christians, not all, by the way, most of our fellow Christians, Dionysius says, showed unbounding love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departing this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease and cheerfully accepting their pains. The best of our brothers and sisters lost their lives in this manner. A number of pastors, deacons, and laymen. Christians who knew Jesus, they knew his sacrificial love for the city of God, I'm sorry, for the city of man, for earth. These Christians took up the call to care for people during a pandemic, charging in some of them, losing their lives because of it. Where would they get that idea? I wonder. Let me close with this. A few principles of, of application, if that's our heart, to charge into places that have need with a heart of God's compassion for others. One, we need to prepare to God, for God to eliminate our plants. God provided a plant. Jonah loved that comfort. Orange County is known for people who love comfort. It's a lot of people who are making a lot of very strategic decisions in their lives to build a thing that will sustain them through their life and maybe pass on some stuff to their next generation. What if God's calling us to do something just different in mindset? Sometimes we idolize things. 
We love these things. We put our hope and our kind of worship in these things. And if your faith feels bipolar, and it's just back and forth, angry and at peace, I can tell you almost definitively, that's because you are worshiping two gods, just like Jonah. If you're back and forth in your life, faithful and unfaithful, worried, fearful, stressed out, and then at peace and worshiping God, just like Jonah chapter 2, salvation is of the Lord. If that's your life, it's because you're worshiping two gods. Your hope is in two things. Your faith is in two things. Your satisfaction and your affections are for two things. That's the plant. And pray that God takes a worm and destroys it. That'll be for your good. But you got to know, if you're going to follow God, he's going to start sending worms to eating those plants. If you pray the right things, if you say, God, I'm yours, he might take that away, and it might hurt for a while while you figure out that maybe you loved that job, maybe you loved that person, and maybe you loved that comfort and security a little bit too much. It's going to be painful. You might even say, if I lose this person or if I lose this job, I'd rather die. Have you ever felt like if you were honest with God, you would have said that out loud? And maybe it's God removing those plants away from your life so that your affections are for a God who can really satisfy your heart today, tomorrow, eternity. That's part of the process of spiritual growth. Other application point. We have to forgive readily within our city, especially with people who disagree with us. People who, it's almost like when you're having conversations with each other, you, you disagree on so much stuff, you're just talking past one another. You have different definitions of justice. You have different definitions of good. You have different definitions of truth. And if you ever actually got an honest conversation, it would just seem like, I don't even know where to start. Those are the people we're supposed to have compassion for. People who disagree politically, socioeconomic classes. If I can just pause for a minute and give you a little like minutia behind the scenes pastor stuff. There are a lot of churches in Orange County that have a lot of, they might be multi-ethnic, but it's upper middle class and middle class multi-ethnic and lower middle class or a lower income multi-ethnic. Very few churches, even if they really have a heart for multi-ethnic ministry, cross both of the economic divides. I wonder if God might have that for us. Brea, La Habra, Anaheim, and surrounding areas. And if, you, if we can make our way into that kind of ministry, it could be something very powerful. And the last application, we have to sacrifice time and other things to be with people who need something from us. And I think sometimes we work so hard, we have so little of anything to give to anyone, not to mention our family and our friends. We don't have anything to give because we work so much and we've structured our lives where we have to work that hard or have to be that obsessed about different things just to get by. We don't have the margin in our life to give something extra to someone. And it's not like we ever intentionally say, I will not give money to somebody in need, or I will not give time to someone who's hurting. We just default on maximizing our schedule every hour, every day, all year, and then we very subtly kind of bypass the mission that God has called us to do. It might take some hard work for you to create margin in your life. Start out by spending time with God, where you're just bored and with God reading your Bible, and just sitting for 20 minutes with that oddness of like, I'm not being productive right now. And then fold that time over into having some emotional availability for someone who's in need. We have a call to be sacrificial because we have a God who sacrificed himself for us. Jonah ends the book, ungraceful, outside the city. Jesus, very opposite. When he was outside of the city going into Jerusalem, he, he cried for Jerusalem. The book of Isaiah says Jesus was a man of sorrows. Uh, one author I read this week said that Jesus cried 20 times for every time he laughed. He had a heart for people. He hurt inside. He understood what a broken city looks like, and he wept for it multiple times in the New Testament. Jesus was outside the city. He prayed for Jerusalem. And then Hebrews 13 reminds us, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, 
And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such, sacrifice, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. We sacrifice for others because we have a God who has sacrificed himself to bring us into relationship with God. And there's one last quote I want to read you that's from Dionysius that I did not read earlier. I skipped over it. He says this, Christians were attending to the needs of others and ministering to them in Christ, we read, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease. It's saying Christians healed people from the disease, but in the process of healing those people and allowing them to live, caught the disease themselves and cheerfully accepted their pains, taking on the burden of that sickness. And here's the quote. Many in nursing and caring for others transferred the death to, to themselves and died in their stead. Where would Christians get that idea? To die in place of someone else and to do it with joy. But the book of Hebrews says that very thing about Jesus. It says, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. That on some level, in the midst of all the pain and agony and suffering and sacrifice, in taking on our sin on the cross, Jesus with joy did it for us because the joy that was set before Jesus was a redeemed city of God that will last for all of eternity where God will be pleased at being our people and relating to us for the rest of eternity in the city of God spoken of in Revelation 21. Now he'll be our God, we'll be his people, and we'll worship him and glorify him for all of eternity and that will please God forever. You will please God's heart forever. And it will kind of like reverberate throughout the city of God that he has a compassionate heart. Let us, at the end of this series, take that heart into our city, especially this week. Let's pray for that.